If we could completely eradicate inequality in wealth and in uh, education for one generation, then what would it do to inequality in the next generation? Would it be enough to eradicate inequality altogether, or would the former elites manage to reemerge at the top of the economic ladder again? Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Marlon Soror is an assistant professor at the Université du Québec à Montréal. His research stands at the crossroads of development economics, urban economics, and economic history. He's also interested in political economy. He spoke to me about his recent work on a fascinating question. Can revolutions eradicate inequality? Hi, Marlon. Welcome. Thank you for being here today with me. Hi, Clementine. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we are going to talk and revisit the consequences of one of the most important historical events in the 20th century, which is the Chinese Communist Revolution. Could you tell us what inspired you to work on this topic and to investigate the long-term impact of this revolution on inequality? The big motivation of the paper is really to understand what hampers, what uh, impedes social mobility in a society. You know, social sciences, of course, have looked and highlighted many different factors, taxation schemes, the education system, neighborhood influences. What's interesting is that typically all those factors work through two main channels. So you have the effect through what we call the physical capital channel. Think of it as inheritance. So it allows you to access physical capital and this formal human capital. So anything that goes through formal schooling, right? Whether the elite can send their kids to schools and so on. The two revolutions that we use in this paper, Chinese Communist Revolution, so between 1949 and 1953, or 56 if you include urban areas, and the Cultural Revolution between 1966 and 76, the two major revolutions that occurred back to back. They really shut down those two major channels. So for one entire generation, people in China were not allowed to bequeath their assets. So the next generation could not inherit. And during the Cultural Revolution, access to higher secondary and tertiary education was completely equalized because high schools and, and colleges were shut down for part of the period. Uh, so that's what made it interesting because it allows us to answer a question that I think cannot be answered in other contexts, which is if we could completely eradicate inequality in wealth and in uh, education for one generation, then what would it do to inequality in the next generation? Would it be enough to eradicate inequality altogether Or would the former elites manage to reemerge at the top of the economic ladder again? So for a very long time, we had little reliable evidence of the impact of these historical episodes on inequality in the past and obviously on today's inequality. What is the novelty of your empirical approach and specifically the data sets that you were able to gather together? Everybody knew that the Chinese revolutions had been effective in, in some sense, that the, the, the land reform that characterized the Chinese revolution, communist revolution in the late 40s and early 50s had, had been quite effective, had worked. But it had never been, at least as far as I know, well, well quantified. And same for the long-term inequality effect. So what we do in the paper is that we use two main sources of data. There's one first source of data that looks at the effect of those revolutions in the short run, in particular of the communist revolution. For that, we use, we digitize manually county gazetteers in a set of archival records at the county level. There's a similar thing in cities that basically chronicle important events. And so, of course, the land reform and all the events surrounding the Chinese Communist Revolution were, were part of those important events. So they're, they're usually 
quite well chronicled in those gazetteers. And that gives us, interestingly, not only information on levels of inequality just before and just after the Communist Revolution, but also on the distribution of assets by social classes, by class labels. That would be critical also for the second data set. But basically, the communist leaders at the beginning of the, of the communist revolution assigned social classes, social categories to the entire population at the household level. And so typically you have land holdings at the county level by five social classes, landlords, rich peasants, middle peasants, poor peasants, and hired laborers. So for them it's zero, practically zero. So you get an idea of the distribution of land ownership just before and just after the land reform. And there's something similar in urban areas. The bulk of the population was, was in rural areas, of course, at the time. So that's the first main data source that allows us to look at the effect of the land reform on asset inequality, land and, and businesses in the short run. And then to look at the long run impact, we use survey data, so a nationally representative household survey data that, that contains information on people's class labels. So that allows us to link people in, in contemporary generations, so they're measured in 2010, so we, we observe people in 2010, and we can link those individuals back to asset levels before the Chinese Communist Revolutions, land reform, and rural areas, and, and socialist transformation of capitalist enterprises. We got the English translation, it's quite a mouthful. And so that's how we can look at uh, generations and their asset levels across three generations, which is, I think, unique in developing countries and even quite unique in general. Usually, uh, you can only look at uh, persistence of socioeconomic status across two generations. So you mentioned these two aspects of the revolution and how it affected physical capital and human capital. So first, what do you observe in terms of the impact of these revolutions based on these new measures you have? So in the short run, what we find is that inequality basically disappeared in rural areas in terms of land assets, which is the main asset at the time, as a consequence of the land reform. So this was really a massive enterprise, a massive social transformation, a quite staggering 40% of all arable land in China actually changed hands during the revolution. And most of the time it meant taking land away from the pre-revolution elite. So the landlords and rich peasants, which corresponded roughly to the top 10% to people like middle peasants, poor peasants, and, and hired labor. And what happened is that we show in the data is there was in rural China basically a Gini coefficient of around 0.5, so quite high by, by international standards. And it went down to 0.1 just over, over five years. So really an effective land reform. So we knew that, but I guess it shouldn't be taken for granted that it was so effective in such a short period of time. And then the, the second revolution is the Cultural Revolution, which occurred a, a little bit later, but affected basically the same generation. That Cultural Revolution also had a very important impact. So for the whole period between like the late 1940s and mid or late uh, 1970s, there were quotas and all sorts of discriminations against the pre-revolution elite in terms of access to education. But the Cultural Revolution is interesting because it was so radical in the sense that it completely leveled access to higher education and colleges because those high schools and colleges were just shut down during that period. So it ensures that people who were subbed, who were affected by the Cultural Revolution could not uh, be any different in terms of uh, secondary and, and tertiary education regardless of their pre-revolution elite background.
The key novelty of your research is to look at the persistent effect of these revolutions. So I wanted to ask you, how different are the grandkids of the pre-revolution elite from the rest of the population? Before I answer the question, maybe I can tell you a quick anecdote uh, so that we're all on the same page in terms of the generations that we follow. Let's take the example of one individual called uh, Huang Guangyu, who was born in 1969. He was from a, a rich landlord family. His grandfather was born in Guangdong and was a, a rich landlord there. And as every landlord in China, he lost everything during the Communist Revolution. His land was confiscated, his productive tools, whatever real estate he had, was expropriated and redistributed to poor people in the village. Then his father, Huang Changyi, was no different from the rest of the Chinese population in the village. He could not receive any inheritance because he could have gone to high school or college during the Cultural Revolution. He, of course, was affected by that revolution and was no different from the rest of the, of the population. And he eked out a quite modest living by extracting personal oil. Huang, Chang, Huang Guangyu himself was a very poor as a child. He collected trash with his siblings to, to get by. But he made it into uh, Renmin College, which is one of the best colleges in China. And then he could avail himself of the first wave of private enterprise in China and founded Guomei Electronics which be in 1987, I think, which became a huge success and made him China's richest man for some part of the 2000s. So, of course, this is an extreme example. But what we find in the long run is with the descendants of the pre-revolution elites, despite extraordinary repression, being, becoming significantly and substantially better off today than those from non-elite households. So just to be a bit more precise, the descendants, grandchildren of the landlords who were expropriated during the, the land reform, are nowadays, I should say as measured in, in 2010, on average 12% richer, they earn 12% more income than people from the same birth cohort, the same labor market, but who do not come from pre-revolution elite households. Uh, they're also more educated. They're, they have 11% more, more years of schooling, to be precise. And they also exhibit very different values and behavior. They're more likely to express values typically associated with entrepreneurship. They work more. They take uh, less leisure on weekends. And they're more likely also to, to migrate to the right places in the right time, which is related probably to, to entrepreneurship. It's also worth noting that the, the pre-revolution elite, or the, in the, the grandchildren generation, managed to reach an, an earning premium. So the, the income gap relative to the rest of the population is about the same as that enjoyed by the new post-revolution uh, communist elite, which suggests that it's quite, quite sizable. La minute technique. So as one way to capture the persistence of belonging to the elite, you are using persistent traits of the top deciles. So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to explain one technical aspect of their work. And I wanted to ask you about the intuition behind the transition matrix and the link you make with the regression analysis that you derive in order to make some cross-countries comparison? It's difficult to benchmark that rebound of the pre-revolution elites. We have different ways to do it in the paper. Uh, one way to, to do it is to compare the, um, the transition probability, that is the, the probability that one stays in the top decile, the top 10% in terms of income if one's grandparents were in the top 10%. In the paper, we use statistical regressions to measure the probability for someone in the children generation to belong to the 10%, top 10%, conditional on their grandparents belonging to the elite. I told you that the elite, uh, pre-revolution elite, was roughly at the top 10% as well. 
Whereas in the literature, typically what researchers work with is a transition matrix. So imagine that you divide the grandchildren in terms of income in, into uh, 10 different bins. So you have the bottom 10% in terms of income, then you have the, the next 10% and so on and so forth until the top 10%. And you do the same thing for their grandparents from the bottom 10% to the top 10%. In, in that matrix, there's a big table and in each cell, each cell in that table, tells you the probability that you move, so to speak, from a given decile, a given 10% bin, to another 10% bin over the three generations. On the one hand, for China, we have regressions, where we have coefficients that comes from explaining a dummy, an indicator variable for being in the top 10% of the children generation on a dummy for being a part of the pre-revolution elite. And on the other hand, for, for other countries, we have that transition probability from a transition matrix. How do you convert the one to the other? Well, the intuition is that with a, with a regression coefficient, the, the coefficient you get is actually, it's not a probability transition, it's the expectation of a probability difference. So it is the difference between the probability to be in the top 10% for descendants of top 10% grandparents and the probability to be in the top 10% for descendants of the bottom 90% parents. So just using the simple intuition, simple equivalence, we can compare inequality levels, the degree of persistence in the top decile across countries. And what we find is that China, if anything, is uh, displays more persistence in the top decile than other countries like the US or Canada, canonical capitalist countries that never had a communist revolution or a cultural revolution. It's also higher than in Russia that did have a land reform, but never experienced a cultural revolution. And it's also higher than in Taiwan, which is probably the closest you can get to a counterfactual China, but of course had a very different history with no communist regime after 1949. What I found fascinating in the paper is that you investigate the transmission of inequality and the various mechanisms that can be behind it. I wanted to ask you what explained this persistence the most. Indeed, that's a very interesting point. We document two major mechanisms that could explain, at least in part, the resurgence and persistence of the pre-revolution elite. First, it's uh, human capital transmission, but informal human capital transmission. So think of anything that is not inheritance and schooling through the formal system. So it can be transmission of knowledge, but within the household, not from schools, transmission of skills, also values, aspirations. So we call it informal human capital. And this has survived despite the revolutions. And we find that the pre-revolution elite performed better in standardized reading tests than the rest of the population, regardless of how much schooling they got and, and, and formal schooling. They're systematically different in terms of values and attitudes today. Both, they're different both from the non-elite and from the post-revolution communist elite. In particular, they're more likely to consider effort as important to success. They're also very different in terms of their expressed work ethics, even if, if we look just at teenagers who have not yet completed formal schooling, have not yet experienced the reality of the labor market themselves. The patterns that we observe in terms of values and, and attitudes, work ethics, are also much stronger for those among the children who co-live with their parents, or the elite children who co-live with their parents. And they're completely absent for those whose parents have passed away prematurely, which is consistent with the idea that vertical transmission of values is what explains their differences, because it requires time spent together across generations. And the second mechanism is that the pre-revolution elite either move to economic opportunities and seem to be much better at that than the non-elite, 
or they remain in ancestral regions where they benefit from, from the networks they have, the traditional networks, which they, they put much more emphasis on. Everybody enjoys an earnings premium for migrating. That's probably why people migrate in the first place. Migrants earn more than observationally identical people who stayed behind. But the children of the pre-evolution elite are, earn a much bigger migration premium uh, than their peers. And this seems to be because they, they, they migrate at the right time, they're more responsive to what we call push factors, that is agricultural revenue shocks, if they come from rural areas, and they're more likely to migrate to the right places, so localities on upward trajectories of economic development. And if they do not migrate, then they seem to benefit a lot from social capital embedded in traditional kinship networks in, in China that would be clans, which were a vital fabric of traditional society and have survived the revolution. So basically what survived the revolution and seems to have allowed, at least partly, the pre-revolution elite's descendants to rebound is what was in their, in their heads, which could not be taken away from them, and whom they knew. And they put a lot of emphasis on that. I also showed that their, their families are more tightly knit. There's a lot of positive assorted matching, which is a big fancy word to say that pre-elite, pre-revolution elite people tend to marry pre-revolution elite people. They're more likely, as I told you, to co-reside with their parents and grandparents. They're more likely to interact in various ways with, with family members. What we learned from your research is that despite these really important revolutions and the clear impact they had, at least for the, the generations of parents, as you call it in the paper, there is this considerable persistence in inequality. And so for me, that brought the question of how should we think about policies that are designed to target intergenerational mobility and inequality as a whole. And I wanted to have your thoughts on that and on what you think is left in terms of future research in the area. One conclusion from the paper is that those channels that I told you about that are centered around families have been extraordinarily resilient. The communist revolution, the cultural revolution were broad and deep institutional political changes. I don't think there's any country that experienced such broad and deep changes for an entire generation. So it looks like any policy that would be less extreme than the two Chinese revolutions we study is unlikely to durably abolish intergenerational transmission because people still interact with each other within households. Many things, all that we call informal human capital, can still be transmitted and seems to be immune to, to policy interventions. It could, however, suggest that policies that work on informal human capital directly, maybe through schools, maybe through, I don't know, uh, could work through households by making them aware of the importance of, of values, beliefs, and aspirations might have a role to play. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask if you had a recommendation for our listeners of a book, a movie, or something you would like to share with us. The first reference that came to mind is To Live, Hojo, the book by Yu Hua, and it was later turned into a movie by Zhang Yimou with Gong Li, it's quite a famous uh, movie, about the turmoil experienced by one pre-revolution elite family during the period between, the land, or even before the land of it starts during the, the war and the Cultural Revolution. It resonates quite well with the, with the grandparents and the parents' generation's experience in the paper. Unfortunately, it doesn't show the children's rebound. What I found interesting in that book is that the main characters, so the grandfathers in our terminology, misfortunes and, and, and his family's misfortunes, are mainly due to his own mistakes and shortcomings, and more so in the movie than, than in the book. And I found that extremely puzzling when I watched it. How could so many people suffer the same vexations, war, hunger, poverty, because of personal, let's say, idiosyncratic mistakes? 
right? All the political decisions and economic forces behind the anti-hero and his family's misery are completely absent from the movie and, and to some extent in the book. I guess if you're not convinced by, by economic, read the book and it will get stirred me to, <laughs> to try to understand the political and economic causes behind, behind those experiences. Thank you so much, Marlon, for sharing this and for this conversation. Thank you, Clementine. It was a pleasure. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Van Eventer in Toronto. I want to thank Aisha Philippe for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.